This has been such a weird and unexpected year. Given the 2020 presidential election where Americans have a real choice between the leftist agenda of the Biden-Harris ticket and a liberty-loving, tyranny-hating Trump administration that has fulfilled its promises and delivered on the results, we were guaranteed to have an active year. Then the Chinese Communist Party virus hit a stunned and unprepared world, the lockdowns became commonplace, and the left began rioting and destroying. I've spent the month of August reflecting on the bigger themes of this remarkable year. Next week, I'm going to bring you some special interviews around the Republican National Convention. Be sure to subscribe and hit the bell so you don't miss one of these episodes next week. Today, I am praying for President Trump and his family as they honor the president's brother, Robert Trump. Yet again, the left cannot resist using a personal tragedy to attack President Trump. Senator Ted Cruz and The Daily Caller both pointed out that the mainstream media gave a more glowing obituary to the austere religious scholar and ISIS terror leader al-Baghdadi than they did to Robert Trump. I'm going to show you this headline and from The Daily Caller. The Washington Post gave a nicer obituary to ISIS leader al-Baghdadi than to Robert Trump. And here's Ted Cruz's tweet. This headline on an obituary, no less, is sick. The Washington Post should be ashamed of itself. Robert Trump, RIP. And here's the headline from the Washington Post. It says that the uh, Robert Trump, younger brother of President Trump, who filed lawsuit against Nice, dies at 71. And other commentators talked about this as well and said that the mainstream media is employing attack obituaries now instead of being neutral reporters of important information to Americans. So you can see where the game is right now in our co communal dialogue, our national debate. And today I want to give you my insights on the biggest stories of the day. I'm Gail Trotter, host of The Gail Trotter Show. I'm a liberty-loving, tyranny-hating lawyer based in your nation's capital. My goal is to keep you informed and to be your spokesman in Washington, D.C. Subscribe to my channel below. Hit the bell so you don't miss a daily episode. Please comment down below on what topics you would like me to cover next. I have five insights to share with you today about the biggest stories of this week. The first topic to talk about today was the dramatic and surprising arrest of Steve Bannon. I'm going to show you right now the indictment. And this is from the Southern of New York against Brian Colfage, Stephen Bannon, Andrew Badalato and Timothy Shea. And I just want to say right at the beginning, we interviewed a Timothy Shea at CPAC this year. You can find the video on the website, but that is not the same Timothy Shea who was also charged with Steve Bannon 
in the scheme to defraud donors for the rebuild the wall campaign. Now I'm going to link down below to this indictment so that if you want to read it in its entirety, you have it easily accessible to you. But essentially what happened, and I'm going to share this other article with you in the AP talking about uh, this headline of with Steve Bannon's arrest, the sovereign district sends another salvo. And I want to share this with you because it just never stops. The left has a narrative that they continue to push. The Democrats push it, their allies in the mainstream media push it. So I want to read to you. This is the opening of this supposedly straight fact-based uh, article by the Associated Press. So I'm going to quote from the article. If the recent firing of the top federal prosecutor in Manhattan was intended to quell criminal investigations into President Donald Trump's close associates, as some have accused, federal prosecutors in New York appear to have missed the memo. Thursday's arrest of Steve Bannon, Trump's former chief strategist, served as a stark reminder that no one who has been within the president's inner circle is automatically immune from federal scrutiny. So I think this article is really important to share with you because this underscores the point that I have made over and over and over again, that the mainstream media is trying to sell you a narrative and they see every event, every activity, every policy proposed, every court decision, every person that is in Trump's uh, universe as confirming their view of how they hate Donald Trump. They think he should be prosecuted as a war criminal. He should be impeached. He should be thrown out. He should be put in jail. His, his name and the names of all of his supporters should live in infamy for the rest of history. And this article shows that tendency and effort to continue to push this narrative. Because remember, we discussed this weeks ago, talking about how Bill Barr had fired the interim top federal prosecutor at the Southern District of New York, Jeffrey Berman. And there was headlines screaming across the country about how this was a terrible misappropriation of justice, miscarriage of justice, and Bill Barr was a terrible attorney general. And this was obviously an effort to shut down investigations against Donald Trump. So if you go into this, this latest news about Steve Bannon with that preconceived notion or uh, argument that you want to make as a person on the left or as the Democrats or as the mainstream media, then of course, you're going to come out with this justification of it, which is backwards. It is completely backwards of what should be inferred from this news development about Steve Bannon. So let me underscore this again. If the recent firing of the top federal prosecutor in Manhattan was intended to quell criminal investigations, so that's the left's narrative, that's the Democrats' narrative, that's the mainstream media's narrative, that Bill Barr fired Jeffrey Berman to quell investigations into Donald Trump. So instead of taking this charging of Steve Bannon as a refutation, a contradiction, as evidence against 
the mainstream media's narrative that Bill Barr fired Jeffrey Berman to stop investigations into Donald Trump and those around him. No, the mainstream media, the Democrats and the left doubled down on this allegation. And so that's why you see where in the headline it says sovereign district, because you might remember we talked about that, that the idea that the Southern District of New York is sort of independent of the Department of Justice, and they're very proud of their efforts on behalf of justice, and it's trying to emphasize that the sovereign district is operating apart from what Bill Barr wants and apart from what the Department of Justice wants and apart from what they're saying President Trump wants. So it's like they see the evidence of the opposite conclusion of what they've been pushing on the American people and the world. And they use that as further evidence of their flawed narrative in the first place. So I just think that's so important whenever we see these to point them out to you, because not only does it take away from the substance of their argument, it shows that their entire premise is flawed and their entire motivation and effort is to get Donald Trump. So for your further reading pleasure, I want to link to this piece by my friend and someone that I admire very much who also served in the federal prosecutor's office in New York. This is a piece, I will link to it down below, uh, written by Andy McCarthy entitled, Steve Bannon's Arrest in Alleged Scheme to Defraud Border Wall Donors, What's Behind This? The fundraising campaign raised $25 million. So I commend this article to you to read, and we don't know what the facts are yet. So the federal government has made criminal allegations against Steve Bannon and these other people, and I'm sure we're going to see the facts come out. Obviously, everybody is presumed innocent in our system of justice, so I'm not going to comment on the validity of the charges against him because I have no more information than what's in the indictment. But I do think it's really critically important to think about this. Think about that. People, out of the goodness of their heart and out of their, their commitment to want to not have open borders, to want to preserve national sovereignty, donated $25 million of their hard-earned cash to try and build a wall because the federal government for decades was unable to manage our illegal immigration. And I think it's important to note that as we're seeing all these narratives pumped out by the left, they're going to continue to try to, to tie Steve Bannon to President Trump. But you might remember that one of the books that was written that was derogatory, critical, highly critical of President Trump, I think it was called The, the Fire and the Fury by Michael Wolff, who was led into the White House to get those interviews and that information to write a book that targeted trying to discredit President Trump and his administration. It was Steve Bannon. And when you think about Steve Bannon too, he was let go from the White House. So obviously there was not an alignment of purpose and uh, the strategy that President Trump and his administration eventually had with Steve Bannon. So I think that's important to know too. And apparently President Trump when all of this was going on with this, this fundraising campaign, did not think that that was a good idea. 
And I respect him for that because we shouldn't have to ask the American people to personally fund a wall. That is the core responsibility of the federal government under our constitution to defend our national sovereignty. That is the entire reason why the states bound together in our constitution, in our United States of America, so that we could help with the mutual defense of all of the American people. And a very fundamental part of that is making sure that we have the ability to say who comes in our country and who doesn't come out in our country, who becomes a citizen, who doesn't become a citizen, who has all the privileges and immunities of American citizenship instead of just letting it be whoever waltzes across the border or whomever the left wants to lionize now. So we're gonna continue to follow this story for you. And it is a huge, huge story, but not for the reasons that the mainstream media, the left and the Democrats would like you to believe it's a huge story. My second update to share with you today is exciting news. We cover the Second Amendment very closely. We go on the road, we go to rallies, we cover what's going on in the courts, we share with you what major political candidates views are on the Second Amendment. And there was this stunning victory at the Ninth Circuit last week. I'm gonna link down below to this article that I am sharing with you right now. And the headline says it all. Federal appeals court strikes down California's ban on high capacity magazines, says restrictions violate the Second Amendment. It criminalizes the possession of half of all magazines in America, the court majority says in the ruling. So this is fabulous news. Everyone knows that the Ninth Circuit has previously been reliably liberal. And when the Democrats can't get what they want in other circuits, they go forum shopping to the Ninth Circuit to try and not only get a good result in the Ninth Circuit and the states that are part of the Ninth Circuit, but also to, to try and get net nationwide injunctions on these issues. We saw this over and over again with Obamacare, with the immigration issues, and with many, many important items of national debate where the left can go the Ninth Circuit and get a ruling that they like and try to expand that to the entire country. So this is critical. And this is what we talk about so much is how important judges are in upholding our fundamental civil rights, particularly the Second Amendment, the First Amendment. We've talked about the freedom of religion, uh, the free exercise of religion. And here's the Second Amendment. And here is the Ninth Circuit upholding our core constitutional rights. And why is that? That's because the American voters understood how critically important the Supreme Court is. They believed or hoped that Donald Trump would follow through on his promise to put judges on the court who were faithful to the Constitution, who were fair, who were independent. And we're seeing the results of that trust that voters put into Donald Trump in 2016. And this is something that's going to continue to be in 2020. And I mean, every year, this is a constant fight to preserve this core constitutional right that citizens in other countries don't have and that Americans have the, the blessing of. So I also wanna share with you uh, this 
issue that I, this piece that I wrote about the Democratic National Convention. So you might have been watching the convention this week. And honestly, I couldn't stomach it until last night when Biden was speaking. And I thought, ah, oh, I want to pre prepare for the show tomorrow. And so I need to watch what Biden says. And so I tuned in before Joe Biden and I watched the Dixie Chicks sing the national anthem. And I wondered if I was going to be canceled for not turning it off because I thought the left had canceled the national anthem. And I thought the left had canceled any references to the South. So the Dixie Chicks, I guess they've dropped Dixie, but just their affiliation with that term at all for people on the right seems to be a cancelable offense. But there we had at the DNC, the Dixie Chicks singing the national anthem. Seemed very strange to me. But I'm going to link to this piece about my time at the DNC convention in 2016 in Philadelphia. And it was a freak show. And I didn't have the ability to go to it this year. Nobody did. But watching it last night, it seemed like it was yet again a freak show. And I think that watching what many liberal commentators were saying on Twitter as they were watching the DNC kind of confirmed to me that there is just this complete uh, disconnect between the elites, the left, the liberals, and what real uh, regular Americans watching what they're providing would have a reaction to. So I can't believe that four years have passed since the RNC convention in Cleveland that I also attended and the Philadelphia, the Democratic convention in 2016. And I just think it's really important to know that the Democrats in their convention, they're trying to pretend like they support the Second Amendment. But in truth, they want to hollow out the Second Amendment so that it is a right in name only, that it has no teeth, that you really would lose so many of the rights that you enjoy now. And we're seeing the media trying to support that Democrat narrative that the Democrats, Biden and Kamala Harris, are not against the Second Amendment. So, for example, there's this AFP fact check and which I think is a ridiculous, uh, ridiculous thing to say anyway, because a fact check makes it seem like you're neutral and objective, but the fact checks from the left are always partisan politics obscured in this idea that they're being objective or neutral. So I'm gonna link down below to this piece that's an AFP fact check, and it says, Kamala Harris does not oppose gun ownership or the second amendment. And then reading from the, the subtext of this, an article and Facebook post claim Democratic vice presidential candidate Kamala Harris opposes the right to own a gun and has plans with running mate Joe Biden to dismantle the Second Amendment to the US Constitution. These claims are false. Although Harris supports gun safety laws, she says these can coexist with the Second Amendment and she is not gun ownership. This article is a joke. It is a joke and is so offensive. It is not balanced. It's not trying to show both sides. It's establishing as a fact what is not a fact. And it doesn't give evidence for this either. So think about this. 
Gun safety laws is a euphemism for taking away your right to keep and bear arms in defense of yourself, in defense of your community, in defense of vulnerable people in your environ. And that should be detailed in this article, not the uh, apology for Kamala Harris and Joe Biden and an attack on those who support the Second Amendment. So let's go look at the facts ourselves. You would think that a fact check would actually go and look at the evidence. So we're going to look at the evidence. I'm going to link to this uh, website, Joe Biden and Kamala Harris's campaign website. And here is the plan. So I'm not going to spend a lot of time going over this because it is very long and very clear that there is an effort to hollow out your Second Amendment. So this is the Biden plan to end our gun violence epidemic. So just to point out something that I thought was really illustrative of this plan, I'm gonna, I'm gonna highlight this for you. This is a gun confiscation plan. Buy back, so this is their plan. This is fact, this is on their website. Buy back the assault weapons and high capacity magazines already in our communities. Biden will institute a program to buy back weapons of war currently on our streets. This will give individuals who now possess assault weapons or high capacity magazines two options sell the weapons to the government or register them under the National Firearms Act. So what does this mean? It's confiscation because it's saying either you conform with this, this effort to track you and to put you on a list and to make you a target, or we're gonna force you under penalty of law, meaning you could lose your liberty, you could go to jail if you didn't comply if Biden is elected and they are able to get Congress to pass this law, or maybe he would do it by pen and phone and do it by an executive order, you're going to have to sell it back to the government. And so they say a buyback because there's this constitutional requirement that you can't have a taking. And also it's this idea that, oh, we're not just going to seize things. They're trying to avoid that confiscation charge. But that's what they're doing. And there's this is the whole thing. It's about go to jail. If you don't surrender your Second Amendment right, you go to jail. And look at that language, too. I want to highlight this for you. To buy back weapons of war. No self-respecting member of the American military would think that the guns that the left, that they're trying to seize from American citizens, would be the weapons that they would want to use on the battlefield. That is just absurd. But these tropes get repeated over and over again by the Democrats, by the left, by the, the people who oppose the Second Amendment. So I just, I mean, go back to this, the AFP article. And Cam Kamala Harris does not oppose gun ownership or the Second Amendment. And this is a fact check. Totally wrong, totally incorrect. And it just, I think, pulls back this, the curtain on what the mainstream media and the left they're trying to uh, convince the American people, but I believe the American people are smarter than that. So let's go on to the next article that I wanna share with you. I'm gonna link to this one down below, and it is an excellent refutation of this 
narrative by the mainstream media and the Democrats that Joe Biden does not oppose the Second Amendment. Here you go. Joe Biden does not understand the Second Amendment. The Democratic presidential candidate favors the same magazine limit that a federal appeals court just declared unconstitutional. So I think this article is really good. I highly recommend it to you. So it shows not only the advantage that Americans have from President Trump putting the right type of women and men on the federal bench, but it also shows that voting for Joe Biden would take us in the opposite direction, in the wrong direction. It would be limiting liberty. It would be supporting tyranny. And that is exactly what we hate on this show. So we're going to go on to share another little news story that caught my eye this week that I think you will be very interested in, too. You might be familiar with the mayor of Chicago, Lori Lightfoot. And this article from Fox News, the headline is just perfect. It might be my favorite headline from the week. Lori Lightfoot, mayor of Chicago, defends the ban on protesters on her block, citing her right to safety. The Democratic mayor said her family required heightened security due to the threats she receives daily. That just made me think of that sweet couple, the McCloskeys in St. Louis, and they were charged with trying to defend their home. And yet here's the mayor of Chicago who has done nothing but give rhetorical support to protests and violence and rioting. And yet when it comes to her home and her family and her safety, that's enough. And I think that's why it's so important to have that concept of liberty loving and tyranny hating. Because when people like this are in office, they make sure that they're secure. They make sure that their security is protected, but they don't defend the most vulnerable people in their society. And when you look at the gun violence that's happening, not just gun violence, but all the violence that's happening in Chicago right now, it's pretty astonishing to me that she, Lori Lightfoot, is not being called out by her own party by her own supporters in Chicago, by the voters, who I would think would see this hypocrisy of safety for me, Lori Lightfoot, but none for you. And I think that we're gonna continue to cover this very crucial issue on the Second Amendment. It's only heating up as we get closer to the November election. And I hope that if you see anything good that you think that I should look at, please share it with me down in the comments. The third topic that I wanna share with you today is the left strategy to demonize America. And I wanna share with you this excellent article by my friend, Mary Eberstadt, who is an excellent writer. I highly recommend her books to you. And she writes in a lot of really great periodicals, long form essays. One of my favorite essays that she wrote was entitled Why Eminem is Right. And I thought it was a very interesting uh, reflection on the culture, pop culture. And it kind of fits in what, with what we were talking about last week with Ben Shapiro and WAP and Cardi B, but that's a topic for another day. So I wanna share with you this excellent piece that she wrote in the Wall Street Journal this week entitled, The Left Still Blames America First. 
And I know I have viewers who are many different ages. So if you were not around or paying attention to politics in the 1980s, I would like to highly commend that you go back and watch this convention speech by Jean Kirkpatrick, who was the former ambassador to the United Nations, in which she talks about, let me find this in the article, here we go. <clears throat> Jean Kirkpatrick, she was a former Democrat who ended up working in the Ronald Reagan administration. So this is from the article, Jean Kirkpatrick delivered one of the most electrifying political convention speeches in American history to Republicans gathered in Dallas on August 20th, 1984. Its theme was that the left wing of the Democratic Party had fallen into the habit of, quote, blaming America first for the nation's foreign policy challenges. A Georgetown political scientist, a longtime Democrat, and then U.S. ambassador to the United Nations, Kirkpatrick hit the point repeatedly and hard whether the issue was Soviet aggression, Iranian theocracy, or relations with our allies, she argued the answer from the left was always the same, more unproductive criticism of America. And I want to share with you, when I was watching the DNC live feed stream last night, I did catch that they tried to take credit for overcoming the Cold War, for beating the Soviet Union in the Cold War, and ultimately the demise of the communist state in the Soviet Union. And it was laughable to me, having lived through the 1980s, that the Democrat Party would try to take credit for winning the Cold War, when all they did was oppose President Reagan's strategy of peace through strength, they opposed him on SDI, which was the strategic defense initiative that was an effort to try to put a missile defense system that was peaceful. The idea was that we would protect our country and then we would not be subject to mutually, mutually assured destruction with the Soviet Union. And because of that buildup by President Reagan, because of the tough rhetoric he gave, you might remember when he went to the Berlin Wall, he talked about, um, he told, he specifically challenged Gorbachev, the leader of the Soviet Union, tear down this wall, Mr. Gorbachev. And so for the Democrats in their convention last night to try and take credit for winning the Cold War when they did everything possible to oppose it, was remarkable, but that's an aside. So back to Mary's piece. Uh, I think she hits the nail on the head in this thesis. So the self-flagellating, you know, beating ourselves up impulse that Kirkpatrick identified remains a political force today, but its target is no longer American foreign policy. It is instead the U.S. at large, its history, its institutions, its place in the world. And the article goes through a lot of evidence for this. Consider the 1619 Project talking about slavery and the foundation of the American nation. She goes through uh, the idea that in universities, we've gotten rid of the curriculum from, quote, dead white males. 
and this idea that Western civilization is something that should be ashamed of instead of something that should be celebrated and that people should learn about it because it gave democracy, it gave liberty, it opposed tyranny. And obviously there are a lot of bumps along the way, but it's not something that we should be ashamed of. So I highly commend this piece by Mary Ebersad in the Wall Street Journal. I'll link to it down below, as I said. And if possible, go Google Jean Kirkpatrick's Republican convention speech and watch it. It's not very long, but it is one of those speeches that should be immortalized. And it shows that there's nothing new under the sun. There, that same argument to blame America first is here with us today, only it's been expanded. It's not just about foreign policy, it's about who we are as a people. And it's trying to make Americans feel bad for all of the problems in the world and all of the problems in our society, instead of coming together, reaching across the aisle and trying to solve our problems together. So I think this is an excellent article and that's something that I wanna highlight for you to look at this week. The fourth topic that I wanna share with you is an update on the General Michael Flynn case. I'm gonna link down below and I'm gonna share with you now this article by Andy McCarthy, who is a legal prosecution expert, former prosecutor with the Department of Justice, as I shared below, before, and he was the primary prosecutor of the Blind Shake, who was the mastermind behind the 1993 World Trade Center bombing. So he really understands how our system of justice works and criminal procedure. So I wanna to link to this article, which I think has some really good information in it for you. It's entitled, Hill Eventually Prevail, but Flynn stands to lose the mandamus fight. Oh, I just hate to read this. But I want to read a little bit from Andy McCarthy in his piece in Fox News. So this is highlighted. Flynn will eventually prevail in having the case dismissed because he has an ace in the hole. If all else fails, the president will pardon him. Meanwhile, maybe Sullivan will grant the dismissal motion as the judge's lawyer hinted at the hearing. If he does not, maybe there will still be time for Flynn to win a reversal on appeal, an eventuality that some circuit judges suggested, but that practically speaking may hinge on whether President Trump is reelected. If Trump loses, he'd have to pardon Flynn by January 20th. Naturally, Flynn would rather not go the pardon route. There's more vindication if the case is formally dismissed on the motion of the prosecuting attorney that brought it. The specter of a pardon has a distorting effect on the proceedings. It has emboldened Sullivan, an erratic, irascible man who has been a judge for 36 years to unleash his inner crazy, knowing it won't make a difference in the end. The circuit judges are more tentative than they might otherwise be in reining him in. So I think there's so many important points in this article by Andy McCarthy, and particularly in this paragraph that I shared, but I think this is just the idea that the president can pardon Flynn is distorting what Judge Sullivan would otherwise do in this case, even though he's been on the bench for 36 years. And he should know 
that if the Department of Justice walks away from a case because they can't make the case anymore, they don't want to make the case anymore, they don't think any crime has been committed, then it's not the judge's rule to jump in and stop playing umpire and try to get the, the game resuscitated and to get in there and try to essentially assume the role of the prosecutor. It is so wrong. And it just shows how politics distorts things so frequently. And General Flynn deserves justice. And just think about this, the longer he goes, I mean, time is our most valuable resource. And this man has been under this cloud, this, this Ill illegitimate prosecution of General Flynn has been going on for years. And he deserves liberty, he deserves freedom, he de deserves to be out from under the cloud of this uh, jeopardy of his that he's experiencing. And President Trump could pardon him, but like Andy said, a pardon is not the complete vindication that the dismissal with prejudice of these charges would be for General Flynn. And that is something that we should all want if we were in a similar situation, falsely accused of something, targeted because of our political views of who we supported as president. And this is not going away either. And we're gonna see this continue to ramp up in the uh, weeks preceding the presidential election. And the hope is that maybe Judge Sullivan will change his mind. Uh, the appellate court, it doesn't look like they're gonna grant the man mandamus, which is this emergency petition to force action by the lower court. Uh, so I, I think Andy McCarthy is correct that that's not gonna happen, could happen, but unlikely to happen. It's possible Judge Sullivan will dismiss the charges, but that's unlikely given how much he has dug in in this case. And uh, I think it's human nature not to want to admit wrong or error. Uh, and also sometimes people get this idea that they are supporting justice when truly they are the ones who are perpetrating injustice on others. So we're gonna keep an eye on this and we hope that General Flynn has justice soon, but it may be many more months that we're waiting for it. The fifth topic for today to update you on that we have been covering very closely concerns the federal courts and also the Supreme Court. So I want to link down below to this excellent article in the Wall Street Journal talking about Kamala Harris and the Knights of Columbus. The Wall Street Journal opinion says a vote for Biden-Harris is a vote for progressive America. So you might not be familiar with this, but when Kamala Harris was in the Senate, she had the opportunity to grill a bunch of President Trump's nominees for the federal bench. And I want to read from this article. It says, Kamala Harris had a question for Brian Bushler, Busher. Since 1993, you have been a member of the Knights of Columbus, an all-male society composed primarily of Catholic men, the California senator wrote Mr. Busher in 2018 while considering his nomination to sit on the U.S. District Court in Nebraska. Were you aware that the Knights of Columbus opposed a woman's right to choose when you joined the organization? So 
think of how mind boggling that is. It's a Catholic organization. The Catholic church has as a fundamental doctrine, a pro-life doctrine. And this organization, the Knights of Columbus is a Catholic organization. So what an offensive question that Kamala Harris raised with this nominee to the federal bench. And uh, as the article goes on, the Knights of Columbus isn't a secretive political group, but a Catholic fraternal organization. It has 2 million members, councils around the world, and no partisan affiliation. It focuses on charity and has assisted persecuted Christians in the Middle East. Catholics who go to mass probably have attended a Knights of Columbus pancake breakfast and hundreds of thousands have bought life insurance from the group. So Kamala Harris and some of her Senate Democrat colleagues apparently wanted to make it not okay to be Catholic or to be a member of Catholic religious organizations. They wanted to uh, cast aspersions on people who, who were members of the Knights of Columbus or had affiliations with Catholic organizations, which who, whatever the religion is, that's wrong. We are not allowed to have a religious test under our constitution. And the fact that they're so bold to say these questions publicly shows how they would, if they had full power and full control, how they would treat people of faith, people of good conscience, people who disagreed with the woke agenda of the left. And so that's, that's one thing. Think about that in relation to who Biden and Kamala Harris would put on the federal bench. And whoever you put on the federal bench, that's the team that you draw from to select people for the Supreme Court. So they would like to see that the uh, people of faith who actually believe what their church teaches or their uh, faith teaches, they shouldn't be on the federal court. So then I'm going to link to this other update. The Trump administration asked the Supreme Court to review decision on Twitter blocks. Group of Twitter users sued after Trump blocked them and they won at the district and circuit court levels. I'm going to uh, link to this down below. This case has always puzzled me because Twitter is just a platform. It's not an official way that the American people engage their candidates. So if you wanna write a letter to the White House, if you want to call the White House, nobody's stopping you from doing that. But for some reason, courts held that President Trump, because he's in office, can't block haters and trolls on Twitter. And I don't understand the rationale for that. Uh, they did a lot of uh, circular legal reasoning to come to that result, but it will be interesting to see what the Supreme Court decides to do on this case, uh, because I personally don't understand why there's a legal prohibition against President Trump blocking trolls on Twitter. You still have the ability to uh, contact President Trump and why they're they're elevating this one platform over traditional ways of of contacting your public officials. I don't know. So let we'll keep an eye on that for you as well. Then something else that's really interesting that's coming up before the Supreme Court. And a link to this CNBC article: the Supreme Court to hear the challenge to Obamacare on November 10th, a week after Election Day. Now the left 
would always like to take its victories at the Supreme Court and say, that's over. We have won at the Supreme Court. We're going to be done. And nobody else can challenge this. But you can see that the Republican attorneys general are continuing to work for healthcare freedom, to take away this one size fits all mandate from Washington, DC. They're not giving up on this fight. So the Supreme Court is gonna hear this challenge on November 10th. And it really revolves around whether or not there's authority for Obamacare anymore, because uh, the if you look at the original decision of the Supreme Court upholding the Obamacare regime, Chief Justice John Roberts turned himself into a pretzel saying that it was a tax or it wasn't a tax. So the Congress and President Trump took that and they said, all right, we're not, we're taking the tax down to zero and we're going to see what the Supreme Court says about that. I'm going to link down below to this piece where I go into the legal discussions about this, the Supreme Court's taxing power, and to see whether or not this will be a su successful strategy to disentangle our healthcare system, which is one fifth or one sixth of our entire economy from the clutches of the bureaucrats in Washington, DC. So I will link to that as well. I think uh, we're gonna continue to see lots of really important cases before the Supreme Court and percolating up from the district courts and the circuit courts. And we're gonna keep an eye on that. And it just confirms that it is so important. The, the federal judiciary is the last stop really on protecting our constitutional rights. And not only that, but also making sure that we are a nation that has a strong rule of law. And if we want rules change, then we should vote people into office who will support the legal changes that we want. Uh, politics is how we order our lives together. And the, the judiciary plays an important role in that, but they need to know their proper place and they not need to not become a super legislature. So we're gonna keep reporting on that. We're gonna keep uh, you up to date on all those big developments at the federal court level. We are watching an acceleration of all the issues that I cover on this channel, the presidential election, the federal courts, Obamacare, our beloved second amendment, the never ending persecution and prosecution of General Michael Flynn. Stay with us as I continue to keep you informed and advocate on your behalf. I'm gonna ask you to do two things today. Please let President Trump and his family know today on social media that you are praying for his family in their time of loss and grief over the passing of his brother, Robert Trump. And also please take the link from this Mary Eberstadt article in the Wall Street Journal and share it with your family and friends so that they can see that nothing has really changed from what the left was doing in the 1980s to oppose liberty and what they're trying to do now in this presidential election. Thank you so much for joining me. Subscribe to my channel below, hit the bell so you don't miss a single episode. Stay tuned for our good interviews from the RNC next week and comment down below on what topics you would like me to cover next. Thanks for listening to The Gail Trotter Show, right in D.C. Be sure to sign up for her mailing list on her website, gailtrotter.com. And also follow her on Twitter, at Gail Trotter, as well as on Facebook and Instagram. Subscribe now, it's easy. 
Thanks for listening. Share the truth. Share the Gail Trotter Show.